0: So we get a lot of visitors at Calvary, not just Christmas and Easter, almost every week there's visitors. If you're one, we welcome you. The reason why we get visitors is because uh, you guys go into the highways and byways and people you're tracking with, you tell them about us and we appreciate that. And when visitors come, we hear a lot of the same thing, right? First of all, they love our music. You guys love our music? Yeah. Uh, They think what we're teaching out of the Bible is compelling. They love our children's and youth programs. We hear a lot of the same stuff. But guaranteed, every visitor always says something like this. Can't believe this is a church. It doesn't look like a church. And I always chuckle in my mind because I'm not sure if everybody understands. For the first three to 500 years of the church, there were no buildings. The church didn't build any buildings. The church was poor. They were persecuted. And many of them were slaves. That's why Paul would write to Timothy about how to treat slaves in a new community. Not slaves like ethnic slaves, like part of our history here in America, but they were slaves of the Roman Empire, indentured servants. So the church didn't have resources. Uh, Acts 2 says they met in homes. They would go to the temple in Jerusalem, the outer courts, because it could hold a lot of people. And they would rent buildings like startup churches do and we did for the majority of our existence. When the church finally could build buildings... Here's what they did. They looked at the grandest architecture of the day, which was the basilica. The basilica was a government building. They were beautiful, and they were ornate. And the church said, we're going to build something that looks like this for the glory of God. So when you visit Europe and you look at great cathedrals, you are looking at basilicas, government buildings that the church filled with art and pews and things like that. So when people come here, they think this This isn't a church because there's no steeple, stained glass, statues, pews, things of that nature. What they don't realize is there's nothing in the Bible that tells us what a church looks like. A synagogue was a square meeting place. I like to say it looked like a beef and beer hall, right? It was just a place for people to gather. So when we leave here today, uh, tomorrow, this just becomes another place. In fact, we had a delivery one day and I took the delivery, I was walking around, and the man gave me the package. He says, uh, by the way, what is this place? I said, oh, we're a church. He goes, you're kidding. I'm like, yeah. I said, what did you think it was? He said, well, I looked at your water fountain. I saw a Coke machine. He goes, I thought you were a spa, like Joseph Anthony or something. So, <laughs> uh, But we are a church. I assure you of that. Why am I saying all this? Last week, when I was teaching you about how to interpret the book of Revelation, I gave you a divine outline. Look up on the screen. In chapter 1, verse 19, John's told to write, the things thou hast seen, that's this unveiling of Jesus Christ in a way he's never seen before. The things that are, there were seven literal churches in Asia Minor, these churches of Revelation, and the things that will come to pass quickly, which is the events of Revelation 5 and on, when they begin, they will come to a quick end. Okay, so we'll get to all that. This morning, we're going to look at these seven churches. Now, the number seven is important. There are 16 sevens in Revelation. See if you can find the other 15 on your own, and I'll let you know when we get there. Whenever you see the number seven, it's pointing to something more significant. It's talking about completion, right? God rested on the seventh day of created the world six days, rested on the seventh, seven notes in a musical scale, seven days a week, seven colors in a rainbow, right? So in chapter one, we see this picture of Jesus in the middle of seven lampstands. The lampstand comes from the temple, The temple was to be a light. We're the light of the world. I've walked you through a lot of that imagery. Jesus is the Lord of the church. He's the head of the church. There is no vicar. There is no man in place of Christ. Jesus leads the church. We are light bearers. We reflect his glory. We are bringing truth to a lost world. And so Jesus is in the midst of these churches. They were literal in that day. They also represent the complete church at any one given time. So right now in 2018, there's a persecuted church, there's a faithful church, a lukewarm church, there's dead churches. And then it also represents believers in any age. That's why it's gonna get quiet in this Presbyterian church in just a few minutes. Jesus said, he who has an ear to hear, that's you and me, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. That's what we wanna do this morning. This morning, we wanna hear what Jesus would have to say about our church, Calvary Chapel, Delaware County, your church if you're visiting, and then what does he have to say about your life? Now, in all of these churches, he affirms what they're doing well, he tells them where they're falling short, and he tells them how to get back on the good path, right? Feedback is the breakfast of champions. You know, if if you're a golfer, if somebody doesn't analyze your golf swing every, every once in a while, you won't know... Uh, how to work out the kinks in your swing. Uh, that's why people have life coaches, right? We, we need someone to see how we're doing. Now, the Bible, as you read it, is, is like a mirror, James says. You could see your, see your life and God will speak to you. But every once in a while, we need someone to speak in our life. And today, Jesus is going to speak to us all. So we're going to talk about our church. And the Holy Spirit's going to tell you where you are and where God wants you to be. Jesus said, as many as I love. Think about this, I rebuke. Uh, If there's a rebuke this morning, it's because God loves you and doesn't wanna leave you where you are. There's higher ground and he knows that higher ground is where life was meant to be lived. Now, in the past, I spent a week on all these churches. I'm gonna spend one day on all of them. And where I wanna focus is to every church, Jesus talks about the overcomers. To him who overcomes, I will do this or that. And I thought that was important because, do you know who the overcomers are? you know who the overcomers are? John 5, 5 says, this is the one who overcomes, the person who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. See, sometimes we think an overcomer is the person who works harder, or somehow they overcome. You might think, Pastor Bob, I'm not overcoming, I barely made it here this morning. If you know Christ, if you really know him, you are an overcomer. We overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the power of our testimony. No situation in life, no circumstance could ever take away my testimony. I knew I was lost, and I knew the day I was found. And no one can ever take that away from me, and no one can take it away from you. You are an overcomer. You just don't know it. Hopefully, you'll find out this morning, and you're going to see the promises. So buckle in, seven churches. This will be quick. Like your doctor says, you might feel a little pressure. That's the Holy Spirit. We'll get through it, and God will speak, I'm sure. The first church is the church at Ephesus. Ephesus was New York City. In fact, if you've been there with us on our Bible tours, they're the greatest ruins in the world. There's still an amphitheater that seats 25,000 there. They have rumble strips. I am serious, they have rumble strips. In their carters that go downhill, there's still toilets there and bathhouses. I mean, it is spectacular. It was a center of banking and finance and culture. Uh, The Temple of Diana was one of the seven wonders of the world. That was there. And in this place, God started a church. Unbelievable. And this church spread, and they were doing amazing things. And Jesus comes and says, I know your works. Uh, You guys are hitting it out of the park. You're doing so many things well. And he has one mild rebuke. You've lost your first love. Jesus called them back to how it all began. Remember in Acts chapter one, they all went in an upper room, 120. Spirit of God came and filled the place. I mean, that that is something new. God filling wineskins, right? And they spoke with tongues and wow, that must have been amazing. And 3,000 were at it and 5,000 were at it. But you know what's funny? You can't go back to the upper room. You know, it's it's one moment in time. And Jesus said, look, you, you lost your motivation. What was once a delight is becoming a duty. By the way, there's one little Bible fragment story that kind of tells us about this. It's Mary and Martha. Jesus was at their house. He loved their house in Bethany. And he was there. Lazarus was there. And you know the story. Martha's making food in the kitchen because she probably has a helps gift and Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet and if helps people aren't affirmed enough, they go sideways, just like we go sideways in our gifts and Martha comes out like, Jesus, don't you understand? I'm doing all the work here and she's just sitting there and Jesus makes it worse by saying, Mary chose the better part. Now, we live in a Martha world. We live in a very busy world. Even in the church, we're busy for God. But if we don't get at Jesus' feet enough, we're not going to be good to anyone. And it's going to become a duty. And it was meant to become a delight. Does that mean we don't work? No. It means we have to find that place that centers us. And Mary chose the better part. Jesus said, if this is you, if you've lost that loving feeling, if you've lost the motivation to serve God, remember where thou hast fallen and do thy first works. Memory is the handmaiden of revival. Do thy first works. Remember when you first got saved. Remember when things were moving. And go back and do those things. I have a friend who calls me from time to time and says, I spent all day with you yesterday. I'm like, what? You're weird. And he said, no, I'm serious. He goes, every once in a while, I have like a day with God, and I listen to one of your messages on the way down, the beach, I spent all day with God, and then I listened to one of your messages on the way home, and the reason I do is you were my first pastor. And when I hear your voice, it reminds me of old things. Jeremiah talks about the old paths. Sometimes we have to go down memory lane and remember all that God has done. And then we've maybe gotta serve, or give, or do something that stokes the fires again. Because Paul said, you can give all your money to the poor, and if there's not love, it's really a waste of time. And you can have all the spiritual gifts in the world. You can speak in tongues. But if you don't have love, you're a a clanging cymbal. You know that whole chapter. So Jesus is saying, look, do this out of love. Do this out of first love. And it'll make all the difference. Now look down in chapter 2 to the one who overcomes. This is great. Verse 7. To the one who overcomes, I will give him to eat from the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God." Now this might be a metaphor, I hope it's not. I hope this is like a Lord of the Rings experience when we get to heaven. Remember the tree of life? When Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis 3, God put angels there and guarded the way. You couldn't get back to the tree of life. He didn't want anyone, this is God's mercy, he didn't want anyone in a fallen condition to eat of the tree of life and stay in that condition. And of course, the gospels in Genesis God would send the seed of a woman who would crush the head of the serpent. But one day, we're going to eat of the tree of life. Tree of life was in the garden. In Revelation, there's a tree for the healing of the nations. Man, I hope this isn't a metaphor. I hope there's a real tree. I want to eat of that tree. I want to, I want to see like, like, whatever is new blood or something go through my veins, like Avatar or something. I want to see like all these bad thoughts get arrayed. Like I am looking forward to this. But there is something to an overcomer in the here and now. I think the scriptures are the tree of life in the here and now. The reason I know is because there is no truth, maybe except algebra and calculus and gravity, outside of the Bible. For those of us who live with Christ for any amount of time, when we came to Christ, we found out that we were lied to from birth. And now we look into this source of truth. And the thing I love about the Bible is it's life-giving. When I sit down, it speaks life to me and ministers to me. And to those who overcome, they will have this experience, I think not only now, but in the age to come. And uh, boy, I hope it's not a metaphor, and I'll meet you at the Tree of Life. The second church was at Smyrna. This is a persecuted church. Only three verses. Look at what Jesus says in verse nine. I know your tribulation. I know your poverty, that you're poor, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but they're a synagogue of Satan. Satan, by the way, appears four times in these different churches. If you don't think Satan has His fiery darts lined up against the church of Jesus Christ, you are sadly mistaken. Now, I learned this the hard way. Uh, When I was a young pastor, Calvary Chapel would have a pastor's gathering in the middle Atlantic states. There was about 20 of us. And we would always start the weekend where guys would go around and talk about all the bad things that were happening in their church. And I didn't have anything bad going on in our church, things were good. So I reverted to like, remember communion where you waited in line? And you kind of made up all these sins, so you had something to tell the priest. So I would kind of like, oh my gosh, what am I going to say? What am I going to say? And then 10 years hit, and I had something to say. Uh, We had gone through what I call the perfect storm. And then we got through that, and I thought, okay, now I know what we should do. And then in 18 years, we went through another thing. And then I finally realized, any church that's doing anything for God is going to hit spiritual warfare or turbulence every so often at a high level. Satan does not like what we're doing right now. He doesn't want lives changed and people delivered and people getting off of alcohol and drugs and finding the knowledge of Jesus Christ. He wants them going to brunch and you know, doing what they're doing right now. And so here's this persecuted church Now, let me give you a little backstory about Smyrna. It was the crown jewel of Asia Minor. The reason it was called that is because they had an elevated street called the Street of Gold. You've heard that imagery before. And in a circular uh, region around this elevated Street of Gold were government buildings that, if you looked at them from a distance, looked like a crown of jewels. And they were the seat of government. They were like Washington, D.C., And because they were loyal to Rome, there was emperor worship, and Christians were being persecuted for not saying Caesar was Lord. So what does Jesus say? I know your tribulation. The word tribulation is is like taking a vice and just squeezing. He goes, I know your tribulation. I know your poverty. I know, I know, I know. When someone says, I know, I know, I know, it means they know by experience, and Jesus did, he was persecuted. They put thorns on his head. They beat him. They crucified him. But what he's basically saying is, I know, and it's not gonna change. One of the problems in Christianity is you have people that walk in, and listen, I believe God heals, and I believe God changes, and I believe in the gifts of the Spirit, but, but, but sometimes the answer is this will not change. In fact, look, right, right here in the Bible, you don't need my words. He says to the church at Smyrna, verse 10, be faithful unto death. He doesn't say you're going to get out of prison or it's all going to be okay. He goes, be faithful unto death. And we all know in the long view of history, the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church. The church grew by leaps and bounds. Look at the last century. Many historians said Stalin killed his millions, Mao his tens of millions. Stalin killed about 20 million Russians. Mao, maybe 40 million Chinese, but there are more Chinese uh, Christians in China today than there are in America. Maybe up up to about 200 million. Mao, spinning in his grave, right? Thought he was abolishing religion. Be faithful unto the end. And notice the imagery here, I'll give you the crown of life. You You think the seat of government is here? Wait till you see what's coming. You're gonna get the crown of life. Be faithful. The persecuted church still exists today. 255 Christians are killed every month for the gospel. 104 are abducted. 180 Christian women are raped, sexually harassed, forced into marriage in the persecuted church. 66 churches are attacked every month. And 160 Christians are detained without trial and in prison. The question we always have to ask is, why couldn't God alleviate this? And the answer is, God's ways are higher than our ways. God looks at the long view of history They tell us the Earth is 13.5 billion years old. I don't believe that, but let's go with it. If that's true, and your whole 70 years on the planet, and don't do the math, don't fact check me on this, it's close enough. Um, If your whole 70 years was persecution out of 13.5 billion, uh, that would be .006 of your existence. Now let's say we live 13.5 billion years into eternity, the persecution on earth will be 0.006 of your experience. See, God doesn't look at life like this. He looks at the long view, even all into eternity. God loves the persecuted church. We need to pray for it. It's not us, but it exists. The next church is the compromising church. This is where it's going to get quiet. Verses 12 to 17. I know your works. Verse 13. And where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the death of Antipas, who was my faithful martyr. Uh, But we have a few things against you, because there are those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balaam to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things, sacrifice to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which I hate. When God says he hates something, that's pretty strong. The doctrine of the Nicolaitans, think of the word, the laity, anyone who would dominate the, la- the laity. In other words, the paid professionals, the clergy. Whenever the church has looked to a paid professionals, things have gone south. Whenever the people have been unleashed, great things have happened. Remember what John said? I'm your brother in tribulation? I'm just like you. I have a title of an apostle, but I'm just like you. The compromising church at Pergamum or Pergamos, you need to know how it happened. Daniel, in the book of Daniel, had a vision of world-dominating empires. There was Babylon that would be overthrown by the Medo-Persians, then Greece, then Rome. This was prophesied hundreds of years before it happened. Babylon was home to the occultic religions, the soothsayers, the magicians who were the magi who came at Jesus' birth. They had all types of sorcery and black arts. That moved from Babylon to Medo, Persian Empire, came to Greece, made its way into Pergamum, and then on to Rome, and then when Rome became the official religion of Rome, it swept its way into the church, and many of those practices are still alive today. It talks here about Balaam. You know what Balaam's sin was? You go back to the book of Numbers. Taking a gift God had given him and using it for profit. You Think that's not alive today in the church? By the way, this was all foreseen by Jesus when he talked about wheat and tares. And the kingdom of God being like this overgrown tree where the fowls of the air would come and rest. Paul gathered the Ephesian elders at Miletus and warned them that grievous wolves were coming in that wouldn't spare the flock. So none of this caught Jesus or the apostles by surprise. The compromising church always compromises two things. One, doctrine, and two, lifestyle. First thing that gets watered down is doctrine. In other words, doctrine goes out the door and is replaced by a whole litany of things. There are some churches that have allowed things in that boggle my mind, I won't go through it. But once you water the scriptures down, then you can live any way you want. And so then lifestyle gets compromised. Maybe you're here this morning. Maybe you really do love Jesus. But maybe you also love the things of this world. Compromise is a death blow to the church. And churches that compromise don't stand for anything. They don't stand for truth. They don't stand for righteousness. They don't don't stand for anything. Therefore, they do nothing. Now, Jesus comes to this church and says, you can overcome. Verse 17. If you have an ear to hear what the Spirit's saying, to him who overcomes, I will give the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on that stone a new name written that no one knows except him who receives it. For those of you who are dating or married, you don't have to raise your hand. Some of you might have pet names for each other. They're hilarious, by the way. You would never tell anyone, right? To the one who overcomes, I'll give the hidden manna. Get, get the, the irony there? Manna is what they had in the desert every day. You know what it was? It was, it was literally called what is this? It was a white wafer cookie, plain as vanilla. Um, what is this? Every day, man, it was, it was plain Jane. Notice what he calls it, hidden manna. See, these people were into the latest thing. The seven steps to this and the eight steps to that and, and how we're going to get rich and how we're going to do this. And to the one who gets out of that, and by the way, a lot of you have gotten out of that, hidden manna. For the first five years of my Christian experience, all I heard was fluff. One day, my wife and I pulled into a parking lot, our kids were in the back seat, and we're like, is there any place we'll ever find that teaches the Bible, and I didn't even know what that meant. And when we walked through the doors of Calvary Chapel, I will never forget it, it was like my heart was opened up, and the Word of God came in, and this hidden man has sustained me and has for all these years. There's nothing new, there's nothing new under the sun, and if it's new, it's probably not true. I'll give you the hidden manna. But this might be my famous, favorite promise, I'll give you a white stone. First of all, a white stone in that day, if you were in a court, a black stone was you were guilty, a white stone is your innocent. So first of all, you're gonna be innocent before God. But on that stone, there's gonna be a name that only you and God know. Some of you were bullied. Some of you were called terrible names. Some of you were called names by your mom, your dad, your spouse, horrific things. Some of you have been demeaned by coworkers or bosses. But God's a great name changer. He takes Jacob, the scoundrel, and he says, You're going to be Israel, the prince with God. Peter, you're a vacillating type of guy, but you're going to be rocky. And one day, to all the overcomers, and I hope it's you, you're going to get a stone. And you're going to look at that name and say, oh my gosh, no one ever saw me this way. God always knew who I was and what I could be. And that'll be between you and God, and it's going to be a beautiful thing to those who overcome. The fourth church, was it Thyatira? Verses 18 to 29. This is the corrupt church. Verse 20. I have a few things against you because you allow the woman Jezebel... She calls herself a prophetess to teach and to seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. We I had a baby dedication. We had a beautiful girl, Tegan. I've done hundreds of baby dedications. I am still waiting for my first Jezebel. It's never going to happen. Nobody's ever going to name a girl Jezebel. Because in the book of Kings, she seduced the prophets of God. She slayed them. And made the people get involved in the worship of Baal. The, the God of strength, the, the God who looked like a bull. And remember, to worship Baal isn't, isn't just to worship Baal. Again, it's a mixture. You could have God and Baal together. So the doctrine of Jezebel is a doctrine that adds leaven to the truth of Scripture. So in other words, we take the truth of Scripture, but we kind of twist it so it sounds really enticing to people who have itching ears, right? This is the corrupt church. This church is alive and well. We see it all around us. Um, But there's a great, great promise to overcomers in verse 26. To him who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. Psalm 2 is quoted there. Uh... And as, uh, and I will give him the bright in the morning star. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says in the churches. Uh, I love this here that will rule the nations and then Psalm 2. Because Psalm 2 talks about how God laughs in the heavens when he looks at the nations. you know what the corrupt church thinks? God will never judge. You will never hear the word judgment in a corrupt church. You'll hear peace and safety and prosperity, but you'll never hear judgment that God will judge. And in a twist here it says, we're gonna rule. There's a promise uh, all throughout scripture that there's gonna be a reward for our lives. And one of the rewards is we're gonna lead other people, we're gonna lead nations, we're gonna lead with Christ. And so that's the promise here that there is a judgment coming. And then the bright and morning star. The morning star is right before dawn, it's right after the darkness. In other words, Jesus is coming, and he'll set things right. If the church is corrupt, God has a way of calling people out of it. Maybe he's called some of you out of it. The church was meant to influence the world. In a corrupt church, the world's influencing them. I ran a survey by the Barna Group on seminary graduates, 2018. Now, this is across the board, and there's a lot of seminaries, liberal and and conservative. Of these graduates who will fill pulpits, 55% didn't believe Jesus bodily rose from the dead. 57% didn't believe the Bible was the infallible word of God. 63% said that same-sex marriages are okay. And a whopping 70% of the people believed in a woman's right to choose. They will now lead these churches. And Jesus said, you can overcome, I can draw you out, and some of you have been drawn out. The next church in chapter three, verses one to six, is the dead church. Verse one, I know your works, that you have a name or reputation that you're alive, but you're dead. Remember I said Jesus sees things differently? Whatever was going on in this church, uh, they thought they were alive. Maybe it had a lot of money, a lot of power, a lot of influence, maybe all the administrators of government sat in the front pew, We're alive. Jesus said, no, you're dead. You're a dead church. Now, this one kills me because to me, a dead church is an oxymoron. You know what an oxymoron is? Two words put together that make no sense, like jumbo shrimp, military intelligence, Microsoft works, right? They just don't make any sense. How could you have a dead church? How could you put a collection of people together who are alive and a church be dead? Well, there's your answer. A dead church is led by people who aren't alive. Hard to believe. G. Campbell Morgan said this. He said, There was nothing in Sardis that could satisfy the heart of Christ, there was nothing fulfilled. Was there no prayer? He said, on earth there were probably prayers. They didn't reach the heavens. Were there no songs? In all likelihood, the music was correct and elaborate, but no harmony was heard in the heavenly temple. Were there no gifts? In all probability, gifts were bestowed with regularity, but they were not registered in the treasure of the inner sanctuary. Everything stopped short of the inner temple. All kinds of committee meetings attended, but nothing done, nothing finished, nothing fulfilled. Resolutions and promises and a great showing upon paper, but nothing reaching fruit for God, nothing that satisfied the divine heart, nothing that answered the divine purpose, no converts, no risk, no faith. We all probably came from a church like this. We all know a church like this. You ever wonder how this happens? It says here they had a reputation. You know, sometimes there really was something that was alive. One person said, you know, God starts with a man when a man's on fire it bears a lot of fruit and sometimes leads to a movement and then once you have a movement you have a lot of machinery that has to keep going and then it eventually becomes a monument and we try and keep it going and we've seen this through history this is why you have denominations by the way because there's a people on fire for God and that wanes and that God pulls a people out of that people and a people out of another people and you wind up with all these denominations How does it happen? Well, again, it's led by people who don't know Christ, I believe. But uh, there's another illustration I want you to remember. My wife and I were in Martha's Vineyard this year, and we rented an Airbnb. A lady was 86 years old. Her dad was a sailor, and she was a sailor. She had sailed until a few years prior. And we were asking her if it was worth going to the next island, Nantucket, and she said, probably not. She said, but there's a museum there. Uh, there's a museum that you all should go. And I knew something about this museum. It was the Museum for the Humane Society. About 300 years ago, there were a group of people who got together who cared about uh, ships that were at sea. So they started the Humane Society where they put huts on the beaches. They lined the beaches with these huts. They called them huts of refuge. And volunteers would go to these huts of refuge, and they would look out at the sea for sailors who lost their way. And they had a motto, you don't have to go out and you don't have to come back. In other words, we're volunteers, and if we see uh, someone out at sea, we're gonna go out, and we're gonna be a refuge for them. And if you choose to go out, you may not come back. Uh, This went on for quite a while, and then somewhere about 100 years ago, the U.S. Coast Guard took over. The U.S. Coast Guard, the paid professionals, start doing this work. But you know what confounded people? The people still met in the Humane Society. They still went to these huts of refuge. But they no longer went to save people. They played bridge and cards, they had tea, and it just became a social gathering. That's the last thing we ever want to happen to the church, where we pay professionals to go out and save people. People that do full-time ministry are to lift the body up so you go out and do the work of ministry. That's what it's all about. The day we look to the paid professionals, it's over. The day a church is all about the paid professionals, it's over. Game over. The day we unleash the power to the people is the day it's game on. Because the Holy Spirit, it's not by might. It's not by power. It's not who's sitting in the front rows. It's by my spirit. It's spirit-filled people reaching people with the love of Christ. Even in the dead church, there's a promise to those who overcome. Verse 5. They'll be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess it before my Father in heaven. Now, every time I come here, people said, uh, does that mean we can lose our salvation? Because he said, I will not blot out his name. I said, well, yeah, that's good, right? You're not going to get blotted out. But as human beings, we always think, okay, if I'm not, that means I can't. No, a king in that day would have a register of all citizens. You were only blotted out if you died or you committed a heinous crime. Jesus said, even those in dead churches, I will call you out and I will not blot out your name. That's the promise. I will pull a people out of a people out of a people. I love this idea about names. Uh, I played basketball and football growing up, and when the Sixers got Julius Irving when I was a freshman, I instantly was attracted to basketball, and I was way behind. So I got cut my freshman and sophomore year. Now, here's how they cut you back then. No orange slices and trophies for everybody, all right? Back then in the Catholic League, 100 kids went out for basketball. And my school was small. At North Catholic, 400 kids would go out. 100 kids would go out, three days of practice. Guess what they did? 12 names pasted to the gym wall. And you just show up. And if your name's there, you're on. If your name's not there, and I don't care what your parents do or who they call, you're done. All right? Freshman year, I go out there. No name. Sophomore. No name, junior year, I saw my name. You know what that feeling's like? Someone chose me. God knows your name. Your name's in the book of life. Does that mean anything to you? It should. Are we chosen and free? Both, but I'm so glad I'm chosen. And I'm so glad my name's there. Now, everybody wants to be the next church. Every church thinks they are this church. The faithful church. To the angel of the church of Philadelphia. This is probably why we think we're this church. (laughs) These things says he who is holy, true, who has the keys of David. By the way, all this imagery comes from chapter 1, what John had seen. Uh, He who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. See, I know your works. I've set before you an open door and no one can shut it. You have a little strength, have kept my word, have not denied my name. I think faithful churches, or, or let's face it, we do want to be this church. I think faithful churches are open door churches. What that means is they're looking for open doors. They want to reach people. They're going to take risks for God. They're going to stop nothing short of sin to reach lost people with the love of God. And so when God opens the door, these churches run through them. And when God closes doors, you all know God closes doors sometimes? Sometimes God closes doors. Remember Jesus? He said, when you leave a place, if they don't accept you, just kick the dust off your feet and go to another town. But faithful churches look for open doors. You have a little strength. It's all we have, guys. You know, we don't have to whoop it up and act like we have a lot of strength. We have a little bit of strength. Our tribe is small. Our God is great. Faithful churches have a big God. They believe in the spirit of God and that when he moves, things will happen. Look at the promise to this church. Verse 10, because you have kept my command to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to to test those who dwell on the earth. Now, the hour is the most documented time in the Bible. It's a time, a time, and a half a time in Daniel. It's, it's seven years in Revelation. It is Matthew 24 when Jesus said, if these days weren't short and no flesh would survive. This is the time of Jacob's trouble. This is God's wrath poured out on a Christ-rejecting world. This is Revelation 5 to 22, or 5 to 16, if you don't want to split hairs. God's promise to the faithful church is, we won't be here. Hence, next week, we're going to talk about the rapture, You'll have to make up your mind. Everybody believes in the rapture. The disagreements are, where is it placed? Look at verse 12. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. Uh, in that day, if you had done something grand or given a lot of money to something, they would write your name on a pillar. Uh, some of you probably came from a church where they write it on a pew. Um, today, people do that who give a lot of money so their name lives on in, 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 for all time, right? Well, there's no pillar because there's no temple in the New Jerusalem. So God's literally gonna write his name on us. I don't know what that means, but it sounds pretty cool to me. And to those who overcome... That's a great promise. Okay, the last church is the lukewarm church. No one wants to be here, but it exists. To the church at Lodicea, verse 15, I know your works, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot. Because you are lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Here's why. You say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. Do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Here's the problem with the lukewarm church. No feedback. How many people in here think they have a blind spot? Raise your hand. Okay. How many people know what it is? Raise your hand. If you knew what it is, it wouldn't be a blind spot. For those who raised your hand, I tricked you a little. What you know is your weakness. Only someone else can bring out your blind spot. Only the Holy Spirit can bring out a spiritual blind spot. Remember I said God sees things differently? This church, for some reason, thought they were wealthy and in need of nothing, including reliance on the Spirit of God. They had it all going on. They had it all figured out. I always said, if we could figure it all out, we wouldn't need God. And Jesus said, you're poor, blind, and and you know what, naked, right? But you know what I think the worst part of this church or this position is? You're miserable. Of course you're miserable. You're not in either camp. So Laodicea was right in the middle of two other uh, cities. Hierapolis and Colossi. Hierapolis had hot water. Colossi had cool water. and aqueduct brought it to Laodicea, and it was lukewarm. So I mentioned pumpkin spice lattes. I want it hot, and I want it thirsty. I want cold water. I don't want anything lukewarm, and neither does God. God's like, I wish you were the prodigal son. Just go spend your money on riotous living. At least you know where you are, or be devout. At least I know where you are. But don't be half in and half out, because it's miserable. You don't feel comfortable in either camp. But there's good news, and it may be the greatest promise in Scripture. Verse 20 Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and dine with him, and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit on my throne as I also overcame and sat on my father's throne. God knocks on the doors of men's hearts. As many as I love, I rebuke. Until our last breath, he's knocking. And, and the knocking is a metaphor. Every day there's love taps. Every day in a falling world, God is doing things, and maybe it's the air in your nostrils, and maybe it's the water out of your tap, and maybe it's the common grace that you're here, but to your dying day, God's knocking, and if any man opens, if any man will let God in, listen to the promise, I will dine with him. In the ancient world, to have someone over to dine with them was the greatest sign of connection. God's not mad at you, He's not trying to make you something you don't want to be. He wants to come in and make you all that you can be in him. And to anyone who opens that door, and so many of us had, we can look back and say, oh my gosh, and to him who overcomes, one day you're going to sit on daddy's lap on the throne in heaven. Maybe it's a metaphor, maybe it's not. I'm looking forward to it. The worst thing about being lukewarm is you're indifferent. People that are indifferent just don't care. They don't care one way or the other. But there's a God who cares. And that's the message you need to hear. There is a God who cares. And he loves you more than you can ever know. So we're all in one of these churches. We're all in one of these places. I trust the Spirit enough to meet you where you are, and he'll bring you where you need to be.